Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we (laughs) are just in awe of the chance to be in your presence. Lord, here we are standing together, and in this moment as we pray together, we are ushered into your very throne room. God, how majestic is your name. How powerful and how thankful we are for this chance. God, there are those among us that need your healing touch. We know that Dan Almquist has been fighting this battle and it is a difficult, difficult battle. We know how much his mother and sisters and brother just love him and his wife and his children, Lord God. But we are also reminded of how much you love him. God, I pray that this time that he has on earth would be blessed by you. God, as we look at this list of prayer requests and and the things that have been told, we, we also give praise to you that you care about all of this stuff even more than we do. You love us. We're thankful, Lord, that Barb's brother is, is recovering, but we also think about Barb's friend who is struggling with COVID, and there are others among us that we know that are having various health issues. God, we think about Rich Uzelman and, and the struggle that he's been in. We pray for Shirley and that the family would just know that God is with them. And God, you are with them. Strengthen his body, Lord. We think about Mark's cousin in the hospital. It's difficult for me even to imagine two months in a hospital. Please give strength to her body. We pray for Jeremiah's sister-in-law with this news and with the adoption and with the, the decisions that they're facing, Lord. In all of that, I pray that you would be right in the middle of it. Give strength to that family, Lord. God, I'm thankful for Brad's time off. And what a reminder, what an encouragement to all of us to use the time that we have to grow in our understanding and relationship with you, Lord. You tell us that if we grow near to you, if we draw nigh to you, Lord, you will draw nigh to us. Thanks, Brad, for that reminder. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder you gave him. Give us strength to be the people you've called us to be, Lord. We want to be a shining light in this community for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I learned very early in marriage that we had a need. We needed an automatic dishwasher. Uh, The first house that we rented, well, I guess in Anderson, um, it did not have an automatic dishwasher, and I just hate washing dishes by hand. I hate it. In fact, I hate it so much that um, I made sure that very early on in my time as youth pastor in this church, we installed a commercial dishwasher. Uh, I took that as a high priority in my ministry. And I have it as a very high priority in my personal life. 
I hate washing dishes by hand. I hate it. It's the bane of my existence. And do you know why? There's lots of reasons why. But one of the primary reasons why I hate washing dishes by hand are glasses. Not this kind of glass. I'm talking like cups. Okay? You know, you know I mean, I, I washed dishes in country kitchen when I was, like, that was my first job. Like, I was the dishwasher, and then I was the head dishwasher at country kitchen. Right? Hey, what are you laughing about that for? It's not funny. Proud of that. So anyways, one of the things about washing dishes or washing cups by hand, especially cups, okay, it's really easy to wash the outside of a cup, right? You just scrub it off. The inside of a cup is so annoying to wash. Hey, do you know what I'm talking about? And look at it. My hands are not like, like huge. I, you see some people, their hands are like giant bear paws. I mean, I don't have bear paw hands, but they're not small either. It doesn't fit. That's so annoying, right? Don't you hate that? And you're like, okay, squeeze your hand this way. And then you can't get the rag in there. And then you get the rag, and then there's some bottles you get the rag in, and then the rag falls all the way in. And then you can't get the rag back out. You're shaking it. I hate that. Now just imagine. Imagine. Me and Gabrielle, we do most of the dishwashing in our house. Most of the dishwashing. And the thing that happens sometimes is, I don't know about your family, but we go through like five gallons of milk a week. Is that anybody else? And about three of those gallons are chocolate milk. Okay? Do you know what happens when you drink chocolate milk and then you leave just a little bit in the bottom and then you just put the glass on the counter and wait for the designated dishwasher people to wash the dishes. Do you know what happens to that glass of milk? I mean, it doesn't matter how many times Gabrielle and I say, just please rinse it out. Just rinse it out. Would you do that? Doesn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Huh? That glass of chocolate milk will just sit there. Do you know what that smells like after about three days? It's bad enough where we, we like, we get the glass and, you know, we, we pick it up and Gabrielle, I, Gabrielle, I, I saw her do this. She does this quite often. She went like this and she goes, Ugh. That's so rude. If you're one of those people that does not wash, okay, that's not part of my sermon. I'm just going to leave that go. I'll let that be part of your family experience, okay? But now just, I just want you to think now, you've, you've smelled that sour milk, how nasty that is after three days. But you also know how annoying it is to wash that by hand. Do you know what you could do? You could just wash the outside. You could just wash the outside of that glass. Wouldn't that be great? What if the designated dishwashers in your family just decided to go on strike for washing the inside of a cup? Right? We'll wash the outside. In fact, I, I'll run the outside of the cup through a sanitizer in such a way that every germ on the outside of that cup is eliminated. Would you drink something from that cup knowing that the outside was perfectly sanitized? but the inside hadn't been touched. I wouldn't either. And so we get to our passage in Luke today. So that little introduction from a little slice of my own life, I, I hope will bring some clarity to everything we're going to talk about today. And now here's why I gave that little story at the beginning. 
Because the passage of Scripture we're reading today is one of those tricky ones. You know, we've been doing expository preaching, which means we preach, we're preaching all the way through a book of Scripture. And we're looking at every word. Now, most preachers don't do this. And one of the reasons most preachers don't do this is because of the passage like we're going to talk about today. Because as a pastor, do you know what I would like to do? I would like to skip this one. This is one of those passages where it's like, oh, I would never choose to preach on this. Even if God was like, Jason, you should preach on this. I'd be like, I'm pretty sure that's not God. Pretty sure that's just something in me. Because I don't want to preach on this. This is a hard one. This one is like, ah. But we're doing expository preaching. This is in here for a reason. And I smashed my head against the wall trying to figure out what God wanted us to know from this. I think I got there. I think we're going to get there together. But we're going to need to pray, as we always do before we read Scripture. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you. As I think about the word that you've given us, and as I, I contemplate the fact that we are separated by 2,000 years from the cultural and historic setting that this was set in, God, we desperately need you. Holy Spirit, please be here and speak to us through your word directly to our hearts and our minds because, God, we can't do this without you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You've been warned. Please turn to Luke chapter 11. The six woes. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, and by the way, remember, he just got done with the whole, the lamp and the light of your body, the light comes in, what comes in makes light inside you, and the darkness that's inside you will cause darkness to come out, or the light that's inside you will cause light to come out. So he just got done with that whole discussion. And when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you! Because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, 
Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Yikes! You know, this is one of those moments when we come face to face with who Jesus really is. Last week we realized that Remember, Jesus was an exorcist. (laughs) And this week we realized that Jesus was also not afraid of a little butt-chewing. He wasn't afraid to chew someone out, was he? You know, I'm reminded again. Last week I I talked about Christian jewelry. (laughs) And I said, maybe we need to start a new uh, Christian jewelry section for Jesus as exorcist. Well, maybe we need to start another one, another section of Christian jewelry, Jesus as the chewer outer. I'm not sure what that jewelry would look like. What would a piece of jewelry look like in which Jesus is saying woe to the Pharisees? Again, this isn't something we normally think about when we think of Jesus, is it? We, we like to think about Jesus as, let the little children come to me, Right? Oh, I'm, I'm so meek and mild. That's, that's the Jesus we like. Or, you know, the Jesus as the self-sacrificing one. The Jesus as the humble one. Do you know what we don't like to think of Jesus as? Woe to you! It's scary! But that's what's in here. So what do we do with this? How do we, what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I want to remind you of something. Because when you read a passage like this and you think to yourself, what am I supposed to do with this passage? How do I apply this to my life? I would like to remind you of something. Again, this is from the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I've mentioned this book a couple times, and some of you have been through that book with me. But I want to remind you of, of, a, of a way that we need to remember when it comes to interpreting Scripture. It is a good question to ask, how do we apply this to our life? But it should not be the first question. The first question that we need to ask when understanding Scripture is, what did this mean to the original audience? That's the first question. Once we understand what it meant to the original audience, then we can ask the question, and what does it mean for us today? I would like to suggest to you 
that much of the church today routinely skips the first question. They routinely skip what did that mean for the original audience, and they always jump immediately to what does this mean for us today. I would like to suggest to you that is one of the biggest issues in Christianity today. It's one of the biggest issues for Christians today. We have this idea that we're supposed to just know what this means for us without knowing what it meant for them. That is not okay. If you'd like to know more about that, you should read that book, and I will read it with you. We'll go through it together. I mean, I, I enjoy teaching people how to do this in a way that you won't get confused. All right, so let's begin. Look at verse 37. When Jesus, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. Now, you should be able to recall from my many sermons in Luke that we have been going through that the Pharisees have been a pretty significant part of the book of Luke up to this point. Now, they haven't been specifically Jesus' enemies. I mean, the Pharisees haven't said, we're going to kill you. But the Pharisees and Jesus have not usually been on the same page. They have seen the same information but come to two different conclusions oftentimes. The Pharisees didn't think Jesus should be consorting with the sinners. The Pharisees thought that all of the righteous people should stay away from the sinners. And Jesus said, no, I, we need to be with the people who are sinning. The Pharisees have been very much like this, and Jesus has been very much hands-on. So we've, we've read about the Pharisees before, um, and Jesus hasn't seen eye-to-eye with them. And I've tried to explain to you over these many sermons in Luke who the Pharisees were. But I want to give a very brief explanation that goes beyond what I've said before about the Pharisees, so that we understand. Because this passage is directly against the Pharisees and the experts in the law. We need to understand who they are. So I've got a short little paragraph. I want to just explain this to you. The Pharisees were a religious sect in Judaism. Okay? So in the same way that the church today has Baptists and Wesleyans and Church of God, and there's Lutherans and there's Episcopalians, In the same way that we have different denominations in the church today, the Jewish faith at the time of Jesus had different, you could call them, denominations. One of those denominations was the Pharisees. There's also Sadducees, and there were Essenes, and there were the Zealots. They were all different branches of Judaism, but the Pharisees are the ones we're focusing on, okay? This, This religious group of Jews... They actually started about 200 years before Jesus, okay? So they had been around for 200 years by the time Jesus came on the scene. They believed that Israel would be restored as the people of God if the people of Israel would submit to the law of Moses. Okay, so you need to understand that the nation of Israel at this time wasn't really a nation. They were controlled by the Romans. They, they didn't have freedom. The Romans were in charge, and you guys kind of know that. But the Pharisees believed that God's kingdom would be made real again when the people of Israel became their own individual free nation again. And they believed that when this happened, 
that would be God's kingdom on earth. And furthermore, they believed that that would happen if the people of Israel would just adhere to the law of Moses closely enough. Now that sounds maybe okay, doesn't it? I mean, these Pharisees, they believed that the reason why Israel was being controlled by the Romans was because the people of Israel were not following God closely enough. So they believed if, we could, if Israel could just focus closely enough on God's law, God himself would bring about his kingdom on earth and create again the nation of Israel as an individual free nation away from the Romans. So do you see in their brains, the Pharisees had connected following God closely enough with God's blessing coming down on the people of Israel. And so the Pharisees, what they decided to do was encourage Israel to get more serious about following the law of Moses. Well, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Except here's the problem. The law of Moses is, well, it's what we call the Old Testament, and specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. The Pharisees believed in all of the books of the Old Testament, and they believed in following the law of Moses exceedingly carefully. But of course, the law of Moses, the problem is, when it says, honor your father and mother, for example, one of the Ten Commandments, the question that gets raised is, What exactly does that mean? In other words, how do you honor your father and mother in every instance of life? And what the Pharisees decided to do, because they were concerned about following the law of Moses, is the Pharisees created another set of spoken rules that would bring clarity to the law of Moses. This new set of rules, so to speak, this tradition of the elders, they believed was just as important as the law itself. And so what, what these Pharisees did was, they, they, this tradition of the elders wrapped around the law of Moses so that people wouldn't even get close to violating one of the laws of Moses. There was like a cushion. Like this, this oral law was like a cushion. Okay? We're going to see what Jesus had to say about all of that. But I want you to know at the beginning that what the Pharisees were trying to do, originally their motive was good. They were trying to get people to come back to God by following the commands of God so closely that they never even got near breaking one of them. Now that sounds good. But let's see what Jesus had to say. Look at verse 38. But the Pharisees, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. You see, here's the thing. That spoken tradition, that tradition of the elders, also known as the oral law, the spoken law, It had a whole section in there about the way that a good Jew was supposed to keep himself clean so that you could be in the presence of God. 
This whole idea focused around keeping yourself ceremonially clean so that you could go to the temple and worship. And if you were not ceremonially clean, then you were not allowed to be at the temple. So the Pharisees were super, super crazy about making sure they stayed ceremonially clean. Now, this meant a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not going to talk about. But at the very least, I want to tell you this. The Pharisees were extremely meticulous about making sure that before you ate, you washed your hands. And you washed all of your dishes very, very carefully, in a very specific way. Now, this, this hand washing, we get confused because we don't understand this. When we think of washing your hands, it's to get the germs off, right? That, that's, I mean, that's what we think. Wash, it's about getting the dirt and the germs off so you don't get the germs in your body. Okay, the whole idea of germs wasn't even in human history until like just 200, 300 years ago for us, right? So 2,000 years ago, they did not know that there was germs. So this isn't about germs, okay? This is about being ceremonially clean so that you could follow God so closely that you were okay to be in God's presence at the temple. So the washing that Jesus skipped, the washing of his hands, was not like scrubbing with soap. It was like this very specific way of letting water pour down and literally like letting so many drips go off each finger, like in a very specific way that the oral law said they had to do. Now notice, this was not something that's in the Old Testament. It's not in the law of Moses. It's something they added, okay? So it wasn't washing. It was like the ceremonial get the water to go in the right place thing. Jesus failed to do the religious act that the Pharisees expected him to do. And from the Pharisees' perspective, what they're thinking is, this teacher is leading people astray, and because he's not telling people to be ceremonially clean, he's actually preventing the kingdom of God from coming. Do you see that? He's preventing the kingdom of God from coming. Now think about what Jesus could have done at this moment. Think about this. When you go into somebody else's house, when you're invited into somebody else's house to have a meal, you kind of are supposed to do what the host asks of you, right? So when you come into someone's house and you see a row of shoes next to the door, you kind of know what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to take your shoes off. Now, everybody's a little different when it comes to that little custom, but you know if you come in and all the shoes are lined up and your host, when they greet you, are in their socks, you're supposed to take your shoes off, right? So in this situation, wouldn't you expect Jesus, what would you expect Jesus to do? It seems like the polite thing to do is for Jesus to go, oh, right, that's the custom of your house, and then ceremonially wash his hands, right? Wouldn't you expect that? <laughs> that is not what Jesus does. Look at verses 39 through 41. So now, and in your mind, if you can picture this moment, Jesus sits down, he just digs in. He doesn't wash his hands, right? And the, and the, the Pharisee is like, surprised. Like, why didn't you wash your hands? And then Jesus looks up 
knowing that he's surprised, and Jesus says this. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Holy cow! Imagine if you went into someone's house, and it's obvious we're supposed to take your shoes off. You don't take your shoes off, and the host of the house is like, "Uh, you know, you're dragging dirt in my house. And then I look up to you and I say, now listen here. (laughs) I mean, what? Yikes! Yikes! This underscores how important the point is that Jesus is making. He's going against the cultural assumption here on purpose. This is a big deal. And this this metaphor that Jesus used about cups and dishes, it's kind of confusing. After all, it's pretty obvious that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees more than he's talking about the cups and the dishes, right? But he's using this cups and dishes thing. Well, it's a little bit helpful for us to look at Mark because in Mark Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, um, Jesus kind of explains this, or Mark explains this. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So Jesus is taking, when he says cups and dishes, and then he He makes a metaphor to, and you, your body is like a cup. Jesus is saying, all of these traditions that you have in the tradition of the elders around ceremonial washing, he's taking them all and combining them into one metaphor. And he's saying, and it's all a bunch of bunk. So Jesus is using the example of the Pharisees these, the Pharisees' super-religious task of ceremonially washing their hands and their cups and their dishes, and he's combining it all together for a representation of the Pharisees themselves. So he's taking their religious things that they do, and he's making a metaphor and saying, these religious things you do stand for who you are. And by doing this, Jesus is showing the Pharisees that they are really missing the point. And I mean, really missing the point. You see, doing a symbolic action of washing your hands means nothing if the inside of your heart is wicked or dirty. Think again. Washing the outside of the cup, if there's sour milk inside, it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to be helpful. Can you imagine how bad that sour milk would smell? Yes, you can. It's plain ridiculous to think that you can ceremonially wash something on the outside and think that somehow the inside is good. I just need to stop here. Because we have participated in a symbolic act today. 
If you think that somehow you participating in this act has cleansed you on the inside, you are wrong. This means nothing if this is wrong. It's interesting to me that there are so many Christians in the world today that somehow think that they are made right because they participate in the symbolic act of communion. I wonder, have they not read Luke 11? Because it's really clear that a symbolic ceremony means nothing if the inside of you is not right. Am I missing something here? I don't think I'm missing something here. So it is with the the Pharisees' ridiculous ceremonial hand-washing. The ceremonial washing was not in the law of Moses. It was in the spoken law. Jesus was calling this out for what it was. It's false. And even more than false. Even more than false. It's dangerous. I mean, if this wasn't that big of a deal, Jesus would have just done what his host asked him to do. Do you see that? He's specifically making a point. That this is dangerous when it comes to religion with God. This way of thinking is dangerous. Doing a symbolic action when your heart is full of greed and wickedness, not only does it mean nothing, it's dangerous. And then Jesus goes on. Look at verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice. And the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now this is interesting. Because this time Jesus notes that the Pharisees are extremely careful to follow the small details in the law of Moses. Giving a tenth of your increase in the law of Moses, a tithe, it's, it's important. The law of Moses makes clear in numerous places you're to give a tenth of your increase. But the point, of this, the point that Jesus is making is, this is like a tenth of the smallest thing, right? The, the Pharisees are super conscious of giving a tithe of like the smallest thing that they use. I mean, think about it. When you put, when you put an herb in your cooking, it's like this much. Like they're concerned about giving a tenth of this much. Do you see that? And Jesus is saying, You are right to give a tenth because that's what the law requires. But you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the thing that actually matters more. Now notice he doesn't say that tithing doesn't matter. He does not say don't tithe. He said tithing, the smallest amount, means nothing if you've missed justice and love. Do you see that? Do you see that? So in the first example, Jesus is saying ceremonial hand-washing is not in God's law. It's stupid to do it and even dangerous, especially if you're not right on the inside. And now he takes up and he says, but when you do something that's required by God's law, that's good. But if you do that without justice and love of God, it means nothing. Again, we we are told to do this as the church today. In, in the New Testament, we are told to do this. And, but this applies, what Jesus says here applies. To do even what is required to do, if your heart isn't right, means nothing. 
means nothing. So yes, we should take communion together. Yes, it should be a moment when we come together as a church. But it means nothing if you ignore justice and the love of God. Now, I've been preaching to you for a long time. We did a whole series on love, remember? Love, without love, we're nothing. If we don't stand up for justice, we're nothing. No matter how many times we take communion. And then Jesus isn't done yet. Look at verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Now, this one isn't quite as hard to understand, is it? The Pharisees love the spotlight. They love the fame. They desire people patting them on the back and giving them kudos, right? By the way, this is why it is so difficult to be a worship leader in the church. Because in a sense, you're performing, but you don't want it to be a performance. Like, the worship leaders who are up here are just worshiping with us. They, they, are, they, are, they are trying to direct their worship to God. The last thing that the people in our church or any church should want is for people to say, oh, that was, your voice is so amazing. That's not what they want. Your, your guitar playing was so incredible. Now, the thing about it is, a lot of the people up here, they have an amazing voice, or they, they have an amazing ability to play guitar, or, or piano, or drums. But that's not why they're up here. God has gifted them to lead us together, but this is not what they want. You know, I, I, the, it's so difficult for me sometimes when people come up to me and say, oh, Jason, that was such a wonderful sermon. And it's like, no, that was God right? I am thankful that people don't come up to me that often and say, wow, Jason, that was really a stinker. Woo! I don't know what you were thinking. That was bad. And I appreciate you not saying that as well. But I guess if you need to say that, you need to say that. But the, the point is, you know, it, it, this is about bringing glory to God. The, the last thing, and the last thing that I want and the people that are up here want is for you to go, oh, that was so great. Oh, that was so wonderful. That, that's not why we're doing this. If it is why we're doing this, we've got to reevaluate what we're doing. Because we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to do that. So, pretty simple. Jesus is saying, the Pharisees, that's what they want. That's all they want. They want the attention. And then, Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 44. This is where he re- This is like the crescendo. Okay? Woe to you! Because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Okay, so the dinner party has taken a drastic turn for the worse. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine if you had invited someone to your house and the conversation ends up with your life is like an unmarked grave? Probably not a lot of eating going on. Probably not a lot of, well, on that note, let's have dessert. Right? I mean, Wow, Jesus, this is harsh. I mean, we can hear that this is harsh to our ears, but I want to suggest to you that this is even more harsh than you think it is. This is, we're doing the, remember, what did the original audience hear? This is even more harsh than what you think. Here's why. Look at Numbers chapter 19, verse 16. So going back to the Old Testament law, the law that the people, the Pharisees were so intent on keeping. Look at this. 
Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Now think about this. This whole issue starts because Jesus doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. So this whole issue starts because the Pharisees are so concerned that Jesus is going to become unclean and defile them all so they can't go to the temple and worship. And Jesus says to them, Pharisees, your entire life is like an unmarked grave. Now, what is an unmarked grave? An unmarked grave is a grave where someone's buried, but you don't know they're buried there. And so, when you walk over that grave as an Old Testament Jew, as you just became defiled, but you don't know you're defiled. And so now, if you go to worship at the temple, you go in a defiled state because you're supposed to wait seven days after being defiled before going to the temple. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? You are worried about me washing my hands, which isn't even a law, and your whole lives, everything you touch is defiled. Everybody who even crosses your path is defiled. Jesus isn't just saying that the Pharisees are dead. He's saying, you defile everybody around you. Huh. Wow. And all this over hand washing, it's almost like just get Jesus a wet wipe and let's move on with the dinner. I mean, this is, this is harsh. This is harsh. Well, at this point in the meal, another guest at the meal speaks up. And this time it's an expert in the law. Now, you may remember from an earlier sermon in Luke, we've also met the experts in the law, right? A lot of times experts in the law were Pharisees. But if you want to get, if you want to split hairs, they were two separate groups, okay? The experts in the law have another name, and that name is lawyer. Remember we talked about lawyers? These are people who were experts in reading and writing the law out. And the expert in the law says in verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you know, to the Pharisees, you also insult us. So the experts in the law, there's the Pharisees, and then there's the experts in the law who are also like Pharisees. But the experts in the law were sitting there and go, man, Jesus is really giving it to the Pharisees. Well, we are the ones who are like the super theologians, right? We're like the seminary professors. And they're like, Jesus, when you say things to those Pharisees, you insult us also. Well, I wonder... Is this going to cause Jesus to back down? Oh, I'm sorry that I offended the seminary professors. Right? Is that what Jesus does? Oh, I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Not only have I offended the pastors, I've also offended the seminary professors. Well, let me take back what I've said, please. No. Jesus, I guess you'd say, doubles down. And he gives it to the 
He gives it to the experts in the law, to the lawyers, even more than he gave it to the Pharisees. Now, before we go on and listen to what Jesus says, I want to remind you of two quick things, okay? Here's the first one. Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God in human flesh. So if God wants to pronounce woe on somebody, God can do that. He's allowed to do that, right? Okay, here's the second thing I want to remind you of, okay? You and I are not God in human flesh, (laughs) okay? So just a reminder, if you think you get to be all righteous and go chew out Pharisees around you, can I just remind you, Jesus is God and you're not. Just a little reminder, okay? All right, now we're going to move on with what Jesus said to the lawyers. Luke 40, 11, 46, Jesus replied, You and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Yikes again! Now, this is super, super scary to me as a pastor. Okay? Because I'm scared... That sometimes when I preach and I get excited and I go like this, right? Sometimes when I get super excited about God's word and I'm like, ah, right? I'm scared that you will hear something that I do not intend. I'm scared that you will hear like I am placing upon you a burden that is too heavy to carry. That scares me. That scares me that I might be communicating with you that Christianity is all about following the rules the right way at the right time. And that you just better get your act together. And that Christianity is all about, we just got to follow all these rules all the time. And then we talk about holiness. I preached a whole series on holiness, remember? And I, I get scared when I talk about holiness. Like, like you might think that holiness, living a holy life, is impossible. Like, like what I'm asking you to do is impossible, but you better do it right or you're going straight to hell. Like, sometimes I, I'm scared that you think that's what I'm saying when I'm reading God's Word to you. That's not what I'm saying at all. Well, I, I'm so concerned that Christians, Christians think that the Christian life is like the worst, like super lame. Like when you go to college, it's going to be stinky as a Christian because you can't do all the fun college stuff that everybody else is doing. That's a lie. Can I tell you the truth? The Christian life's the best life. Can I tell you the truth? That following the way of God, like doing what God has asked us to do, is crazy better than the other. Crazy better. I don't want you to feel like your faith in Christ is just a bunch of rules that are too heavy. I don't want you to feel like you have to hide who you really are because you feel like you need to make your outside ceremonially clean. No. The person you are on Sunday morning, the person I am on Sunday morning, my hope is it's the same exact person you are the rest of the time. That when you come here, you're not putting on some, some falseness, some acting mask. I, I don't want that. I want us to be the same all the time. And it's the best. Do you understand that, that we have the, the chance to be free of all of the junk that everybody else is dealing with? 
We are supposed to have life to the full. And this is so much more than just an appearance of life to the full. Holiness, living the Christian life, is not about being weighed down by burdens. It's about being free to experience life without sin controlling you. Okay. As your pastor, I want to help. I do not want to be like these experts in the law that say, you need to do this, 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 and this. And then stand back and say, and good luck figuring that out by yourself. I don't want that. Like if you're struggling with something, and this is where it gets tricky, because if you're struggling with something in your life, a sin, if you're struggling with something that is keeping you, that's hindering you from the fullness of life in Jesus Christ, my hope is that you would feel safe to come to me, to, to, to confess to me what's going on, to trust that I'm not going to go tell everybody, and to trust that I will actually be someone that can point you to God and like help you. And it's not just me. Like I hope that we feel that way about each other. That we don't live in like this castle where you have to be perfect, but that we can confront our sin and have victory over it. Praise God. Praise God. That we're not just clean on the outside and have three days of sour milk on the inside. All right, we have to move on. Verses 47 through 51. Jesus says, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Okay, this woe, my guess is you're a little confused by what's going on here. That's okay. This is, again, where we have to understand what the original audience heard. So, I'm going to go through this very quickly. God sent prophets to his people Israel, the Old Testament prophets, to warn them that they will experience either blessing or curse based upon whether they choose to follow God or not. Now, oftentimes in the story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel didn't want to hear the prophets. So when the prophets said something that they didn't like, like the prophets would say, you need to stop doing this or God's going to curse you, they would just kill the prophet. That's what a lot of the Israelites did in the Old Testament. They just killed a prophet. Well, Jesus says to these experts of the law, your forefathers killed the prophets and you are going to do that too. In fact, you participate in the killing of the prophets and their message by the way you are living your life and by the way you honor those who did it. Now, of course, here's what we know. We know that God himself, the greatest possible messenger of God, is not a prophet of God. It's God himself, right? God himself was standing there talking to them. And guess what? We know they're about to kill him. So Jesus is saying, woe to you experts of the law, because you are not only just as bad as your forefathers, you're actually going to be worse, aren't you? You're going to kill God himself. Kill God himself. And then this whole thing about 
about uh, Abel and Zechariah. I, I would like to explain this. I know we're past time, but just real quick. Because it doesn't make sense. Why does Jesus say Abel to Zechariah? It seems odd, doesn't it? Well, here's the explanation. Who's Abel? Remember, fun fact. This is the fun fact. This is Cain and Abel. What, what's famous about Abel? Does anybody remember from Genesis? Tristan. What? I, he killed his brother. Abel killed his brother. You know what that was? That's the first murder of a prophet of God. Remember, Cain was like a prophet. He was giving good sacrifices. Remember? Abel was not. So Abel's the first killing of a prophet. Well, who's Zechariah? Now, if you know your Old Testament books, if you learn, memorize the song in KFC, you know that Zechariah is one of the Old Testament prophets. But here's where it gets tricky. Because the Zechariah that Jesus is referring to here is not the Zechariah of the Old Testament book of Zechariah. The Zechariah that Jesus is talking about is actually the Zechariah from 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Look at 2 Chronicles 24, verses, verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. He stood up before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord who has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but killed his son, who said as he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. Now here's the fun fact. The fun fact, I've told you this before, but you've very likely forgotten this. The Old Testament of Jesus' day was not called the Old Testament, was it? It was just called the Bible because they didn't have the New Testament. The 39 books that we call the Old Testament were just the Word of God to the Jews. But here's what's interesting. At the time of Jesus, Malachi was not the last book. Guess what was the last book of the Old Testament, or of the, of the Word of God, of the Torah? The last book of the Torah at the time of Jesus was Second Chronicles. And this story of Zechariah is the last story of Second Chronicles of a prophet being killed by the people. Jesus was saying, from the first prophet killed to the last one, you guys have been consistently killing God's messengers. And you're going to kill another one. Because he's going to kill him. I just think that's a fun fact. See, we, don't, we just assume Malachi is the last one. Jesus was making a very clear point here. We just miss it because we're not looking at it from the original audience. Do you see that? The point that Jesus makes is, you're gonna, you killed the first one, and you killed the last one, and you're going to kill another one, and you act like you're not just like they are. Okay. Small detail, but important. Now, the last section, verses 52 through 54, Jesus says, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, wanting to catch him in something he might say. Up to this point in Luke, the Pharisees and Jesus have disagreed. 
This is the moment. And remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is the moment when the Pharisees and the experts in the law decide to kill him. This is the moment. Now, I don't have all the answers. But I can tell you from our passage today that we would do well to avoid these six woes. Would you agree with me? So, okay. For the end of the sermon, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the verse of each of the six woes, and then I'm going to attempt to paraphrase it in my own words. Now, this is always dangerous when you paraphrase the Word of God. But I'm going to try to to now take what we've learned from the original and bring it into what does this mean for us today. Okay? So here we go. Six things, six woes. The first one, verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So here's my paraphrase. The most important part of following God is the inside, not the outside. The most important part of following God is the inside, not the outside. You need justice and love on the inside. Now the outside stuff that we do, the symbolic stuff that we do, is good. But it has no meaning at all if your inside is wicked. Number two. And by the way, if you've got some wickedness on the inside that you need to deal with, you need to deal with it because that ain't going to help. Number two. Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. My paraphrase. Be humble, not proud. Do not seek attention and religious accolades. Number three, verse 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats. Oop, I skipped verse 43, didn't I? Or verse 44 says, I got the wrong one copied here. Verse 44 says, Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing. Here is the paraphrase. Make sure you are a person who is blessing those around you, not cursing those around you. Make sure that you are a person who is bringing people toward God, not pushing them away from God. And now number four, verse 46. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Don't load people down with impossible religious tasks. And don't do this in the name of holiness. Our job is to help people find their way through life and to help people find their way to God. Which one is it going to be for you? 
Are you loading people down or are you helping people find their way? Number five, verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. Paraphrase. Listen and obey God's message of grace and love to us through Jesus. Did you hear that? Listen and obey. Listen to God himself. Listen and obey. He is speaking the words of God to us. And number six, verse 52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Paraphrase. Help people understand how to get to God. This only happens, by the way, when you are right on the inside. Make sure you are helping people and not hindering them. When was the last time you helped someone understand how to get to God? And I'm not just talking about like the the formal events you know, evangelism words. You know, you've got to say the right prayer. I'm not talking just about that. That's part of it, but it's actually a very small part. <clears throat> when have you just walked alongside someone else and just help them? Help them to know this is the way to live. This is the way to let justice and love guide your life. It's not a bunch of, bunch of rules. It's not about a bunch of useless symbols. Can the symbols be helpful? Yes! But only if this is right inside. We are to be a people who leads people away from darkness and toward light. The Pharisees and the experts in the law, they were leading people to darkness. They were piling up religious garbage on people. I don't want that. I don't want to do that as a pastor. I don't want you to do that as people. The people around us should be blessed and led toward God in every interaction they have with us. May it be so. The symbolic and the religious stuff that we do, it's good. It can be helpful, but it can also be dangerous and bad if we're not right here. So, has God flicked your ear in this sermon? Is there stuff in your life that you know is hindering you? Talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to someone you trust. Talk to your parents. Let them help you. You don't have to live in the darkness any longer. There's freedom. There's light. There's life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open up this new year, 2021, as much as I didn't really want to preach on this, Lord. Now looking at what you had for us, it's hard for me to not see that this is a perfect sermon to begin a new year with. Search us, O Lord. Help us to know if there is an evil way within us. Help us to be corrected that we might be Givers of light and love and life. 
May we take these warnings seriously. And may we be a people that everywhere we go, the life of Jesus Christ is spread from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.